it's no surprise that darkness is often equated with fear and evil. Being in the dark can be scary, especially uh, thinking back to maybe when you were a kid, lying there in your bed with the lights out and you start hearing things. You hear strange noises that sound like they're coming from your closet or that are coming from under your bed. And, and the truth is, is you probably never thought to yourself, hey, I bet there's an ice cream sundae making machine in that closet or under that bed. No, it was always a monster or it was going to be some kind of giant spider or insect or a snake or, or a person or you know, some deranged somebody. The truth is people are more prone to engage in things like crime, <clears throat> drinking, drugs, even sinful thinking, dangerous actions, rash decisions, they are more prone to these things in the darkness of night. And in the book of Proverbs, the young man who lacks sense and sinfully seeks out a carnal encounter does so, quote, in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And this is why Scripture equates sin with darkness. But thankfully, God didn't allow us just to sit there and remain in perpetual darkness, but has provided a light, an amazing light, in the form of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So last week, we, we talked about the life and light of Jesus from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 3. To eight. And we learned that at creation, Jesus had life in himself. Jesus eternally existed. And then at his incarnation, Jesus, the life, becomes Jesus, the light, bringing spiritual truth and the gospel to a dark and sin-cursed world. But the scripture also tells us that the world does not comprehend it. And we also learned of a man sent by God to act as a witness and to testify about the light. This was none other than John the Baptist who was sent to prepare a sinful people for the coming of the light. And he did so by calling people to repentance. He baptized them, symbolizing a a washing away of sin. And secondly, John was to act as a witness and to bear testimony as to who Jesus is. Namely, the fact that he is indeed the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world, a.k.a. the Messiah. So now we continue in John's prologue with verses 9 to 13 and people's reaction to the light. The light has come into the world and now we see their reaction to the light. So please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9, and if you are able, stand again for the reading of God's Word. This is John chapter 1. What? Oh, sorry, John 1. Yeah, oh no. John 9 is like years away. Years away. John chapter 1, verse 9. Verse 9, 9 to 13. And there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. And again, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our first heading this morning is the true light enlightens. The true light enlightens. And we see this back in verse 9, where John wrote, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Now remember the verse 4 just identified Jesus as the light of men 
And remember, too, that this is a recurring theme in John, this whole issue about light. Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And in the midst of healing the man that was born blind, he said, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And to the crowds headed to the Passover feast in Jerusalem, he said, I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And yet we also learned from John chapter 1, verse 5, that the darkness, people who love their sin, did not comprehend Jesus as the light. In fact, they, they, we learned they suppressed the truth. They do suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and they reject Jesus' gospel message. Now, now John tells us more about the true light coming into the world. And this word for true means real, genuine, conformed to the truth. And it would seem that if John feels the need to talk about Jesus as the true light, then this must also mean that there would be false lights that he might have been concerned with. Those lights that were not real, genuine, or true. And you say, well, what, what, what would John have had in mind if that's the case? One of the predominant heresies of the day was something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, the word means knowledge. Gnostics believe that God is good, but that all matter, all physical matter, including the earth, including the human body, is evil, and that Jesus himself is really just what he would call an, they would call an emanation. It's that he, he flows out from God, but in some sense is also less than God. They even argued that Jesus was not a real human being. Yes, he looked like a human being. Yes, you could touch him, uh, physically speaking, but yet he was still, in some sense, uh, they believed spirit as a physical body would make Jesus evil. So in this thinking of theirs, this denied his true humanity. They also would have denied that Jesus has, and, and God created the heavens and the earth, instead suggesting that some kind of evil emanation had created these things. Gnosticism also believed that a higher secret knowledge above scripture was necessary for somebody's enlightenment and even necessary for their salvation. Now, other reasons John calls Jesus the true light comes from comparing Old Covenant truths with New Covenant truths. For instance, while the Old Covenant folks had manna from heaven, in John 6 and verse 32, Jesus identifies himself as the true bread out of heaven. And while Israel was the Old Covenant vine, Jesus now says that he is the true vine. In the Old Covenant, wisdom and law are understood even as light, while John presents Jesus as the true light, the the very real and genuine, true self-disclosure of God to men. John also describes the true light as coming into the world which signifies Jesus' incarnation. The fact that he is fully 100% God. It's his full human manifestation, 100% God, and yet 100% man. We also have to make sure that we understand how John is using this word world. As this is the first time that he uses it, but it will not be his last. In fact, John uses the Greek word for world, which is cosmos, he uses it some 78 times in his gospel. Cosmos can refer to world in a a myriad of ways, right? It, it, It can be used of the universe, of the earth. It can be the material. It can be the immaterial. It just depends on the context. In John, the book of John, while sometimes used to describe the physical world, 
the way John predominantly uses it is to describe humanity and the affairs of people. And what's really interesting about the way John uses this word cosmos is that he does so predominantly in a negative way, using world to most often describe man's sinful rebellion against God. For instance, in verse 9 of chapter 1, it has Jesus coming into the world to do what? Enlighten men. Why? Well, because verse 5 tells us that by implication there is darkness. Darkness is in the world. Then we get down to verse 10. He's going to tell us that the world did not know him. If we were to jump over to chapter 3 in verse 19, it tells us that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. I, I had a bunch of other examples uh, I was going to give you there, but hopefully you get the idea that, again, world is predominantly used by John in this negative way of um, talking about the sinfulness and the darkness of the world. You know, even when we take a, we take a very well-known, famous chapter and verse, John 3.16, we might think, well, well, certainly world is to be understood in a positive sense there, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son or or friends does it imply a gracious merciful loving god in sending his son into a dark world to save sinful men so that they wouldn't perish from the consequences of their sins as one author writes, quote, Therefore, when John tells us that God loves the world in John 3.16, far from being an endorsement of the world, it is a testimony to the character of God. God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad, end quote. Kind of like, kind of like uh, God's reaction to Jonah. In regard to those, those nasty Ninevites, quote, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? God says in Jonah 4.11. In other words, for God so loved Nineveh that he gave them his prophet Jonah. That whoever would believe in God and repent of their sins would not perish but have everlasting life. So getting back to verse 9 and this true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Jesus comes into a dark world. And in doing so he enlightens every man. But of course we need to ask what does that mean? And by the way man here is anthropos. It's also translated as the human race. And let's first say what it doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that every man is enlightened, that all people are saved. That every human being receives salvation. And this is clear from verses 10 to 12, which tell us that while Jesus was in the world, the world did not know Jesus. His own did not receive him. And only some believed in his name. Enlightened is from the same root word as light used of Jesus. And uh, as a verb here, it simply means to give light. It means to illuminate, to make visible. Uh, metaphorically speaking, it can also be to uh, make one see or understand something, to make something known. Last week, we talked about the light in regard to uh, general revelation and special revelation. General, general revelation is the fact that God generally reveals himself through creation. Creation. That human beings uh, know God through what he has created. And because of creation, somewhere inside themselves, they certainly know that there is a God. And we see, uh, see this in passages like uh, Psalm 19.1, Romans 1. We also learned that while general revelation is enough to condemn a person for their sins, it's also not enough to save them. For salvation, we need special 
revelation, which is to say we need the actual gospel message of salvation that Jesus brings into the world. So, if we understand Jesus as the true light coming into the world, referring to his incarnation as a human being and bringing his his gospel message of salvation, how is it then that he enlightens every man because every human being isn't necessarily exposed to the gospel. For instance, you might be thinking, yes, there are those villagers tucked deep in the rainforest of South America, the jungles of Africa, the outback of Australia, who don't have Bibles, who have never been visited by a missionary or exposed to the gospel. And the answer is because the phrase every man doesn't just mean every person without exception, but it can also mean every person without distinction. And so while Jesus' gospel does go out first and foremost to the Jew, followed by the Greek, it does not discriminate. In other words, every kind of person, every tribe, every tongue, every ethnicity, every nation, all are welcome to hear, receive, and believe in the gospel message. In Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6, God the Father is telling his Messiah son how he will use him to enlighten the nations, saying, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In other words, he's not saying it will reach every person without exception, but certainly will reach all the nations. You might remember Zacharias' prophecy in in Luke 2, verse 32, that the Messiah will be a, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. In Acts 26, and verse 23, the apostle is sharing with King Agrippa that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light, both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles meaning to everybody. So in summary, it's not that every person without exception is exposed to the light, but every kind of person is enlightened. The light of the gospel is is indiscriminately available to all. It can be seen by all. It can be known by all. It can be received by all. It can be believed by all. Back in the fall, we took my mom, it was her 80th birthday, and uh, we took her to the Getty Museum, and I was particularly looking forward to seeing Van Gogh's irises there at the museum. It's a free museum, anyone is welcome to go and see this beautiful painting. And once we got in there and we found the Impressionist section, then you're, then you're kind of keeping your eye out, you know, and you're turning here and going through a door here and you're looking at these different paintings, just kind of waiting to see irises. And then, bam, finally there it is, there in front of us. And, of course, the, the bummer with that is then there's this whole, you know, group of people around and you're kind of like straining to see it and get a good look at it but maybe maybe some people maybe some people don't even know it's there at the museum until they happen upon it or or until someone tells them about it and they see it maybe some people wander the gallery and they never see it and even if they were to complain you'd say well you know whose fault is it Uh, you you could have seen it the fact is though the painting was indiscriminately available to all We could see it. Now, if the museum said that, well, Van Gogh's irises is a special exhibit that you have to buy tickets for, well, then it's now not available to all. It's only available then to a special group that are willing to pay. And if the the tickets are, say, you know, $1,000 a piece, then it becomes even more limited. 
Or what if the only people that were allowed to see it had to be over six feet tall with gray hair, one blue eye, one brown eye, and an extra toe? (laughs) Then that would be even more limited that it was available to. It was not available to all in that sense. The gospel, friends, the gospel enlightens every man in that it is available to all people, all kinds of people. Now, we should also say that the Greek word for enlightens, uh, grammatically speaking, we're going to toss out a little bit of grammar here, it's a present active indicative verb in the Greek. And why this is important is because it tells us that the enlightening happens in the present time. It was happening when Jesus started his public ministry. It was happening when John wrote this down and people um, would, would read it and they will continue to be enlightened until Jesus returns. That it's active means that the subject Jesus as the light is the one doing the enlightening. And the fact that it's indicative means it's a true statement. So, there you go. A little bit of grammar along the way. We need to move on, though. Our our second point. Our second point is that the world didn't know the light. The world didn't know the light. We see this in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Now, remember how we've come to understand world, right? In this context, it's equated with darkness. It needs light. And yet this the same world that Jesus as co-creator has made is now, and he's now in, and the world did not know him. You think, but the world should know him, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and this goes along with the fact that the darkness did not comprehend the light, this was not always the case. God once walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, demonstrating with them perfect fellowship between creator God and man. But then man chose to sin. We choose to sin. Therefore, the moral responsibility for not comprehending and knowing Jesus is squarely on whose shoulders? Ours, the world's. The meaning of this phrase, and the world did not know him, it's deeper than simply they didn't know who this Jesus person was. It's about not knowing Christ in an intimate way, in a saving way, much the way Jesus says of the false prophets in Matthew seven twenty three, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You can't help i think but think how sad how sad for the lord that there would be this world that he is so incredibly made and yet then this world turns against him and this world becomes so dark that then the only answer for the creator is to show back up in love and illuminate the way of salvation And yet even then the world rejects him. Uh, Imagine for a minute if you you designed a house. You designed and built a house that you eventually sold. But you you really loved that house. It it was special to you. It was meaningful. And you would would often drive by even after selling it and just to, you know, kind of see how it's doing. And you notice that as time went on, the new owners did not care for the house the way that you did. In fact, it's not just that they don't take basic care of it. They're actually neglecting it, even doing things that are destructive to it. And, and not just in regard to the aesthetics, but even, even structurally speaking, the, the place is just starting to fall apart. So one day you go and you, you visit the people, and in the kindest of ways, you tell them how they, you, you would like to help restore the house. In fact, you will do all of it. You will pay for it, take it upon yourself. It's still their house, and you're going to do it all free of charge. You will make the house structurally sound again, aesthetically beautiful, and they say to you, we don't know what you're talking about. Get off our property. 
get out of here. And yet God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ said, enough, I'm done with them. No, no, that's not what it says, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even in our sin and rebellion against God, Christ dies for us. The world not comprehending or knowing the light is a world rejecting Christ Jesus as Savior. Now, we also know this because of the following. This is our third point. Those who didn't receive the light. There are those who didn't receive the light. We see this in verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Did not receive him. His own referring to the Jews, the house of Israel. And the fact that they did not receive him means they didn't accept him as their Messiah. They didn't accept his message to repent. They didn't accept his message to believe in the gospel. In fact, the, the Jewish people had already had a long history of not listening to the people that God had sent to them. If you go back to Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 25, God says this through the prophet Jeremiah, Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day and he's referring to right at the beginning of the Babylonian exile he says I have sent you all my servants the prophets daily rising early and sending them yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear but they stiffened their neck they did more evil than their fathers turn with me to John chapter 12 John chapter 12, we're going to pick up in verse 37. In John 12, beginning verse 37, John is writing of the Jews' rejection of Jesus and why. Why it is they were rejecting him. He says this in verse 37, But though he, Jesus, had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him, even with the signs and miracles, they were not believing in him. In verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And that's really what it comes down to. They were wanting to instead worship the creature rather than the creator. Amen. And so, as it happened then, because of their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, then they are being blinded, their hearts hardened, they will not be able to see, they will not be able to perceive, be converted. And that is this, this hardening of Israel that we see even to this day. So the Jews refused to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah. We've said many times, too, of course, he came not looking very much like the Messiah that they pictured would come. He was not some great political force. He was not some, some general, you know, with his huge army ready to do battle with the Romans. They refused to acknowledge him. They refused to embrace Jesus' gospel message to repent and believe. And they refused to follow Jesus and obey his commands. And thus as it is to this day. 
But here's the good news. The good news, friends, is that there will come a day when God's covenant people, the hardening, will lift. And they will actually be grafted back in. This is great because we were just reading this in our elder scripture and prayer time last Tuesday. It says in Romans eleven twenty three, for God is able to graft them in again. As Paul explains in verse 25 of that Romans 11, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And so all Israel will be saved. So, so grafting, for those that might not be familiar of, uh, with it here, is um, in, in reference to horticulture, to plants, is the act of joining two plants together in order to produce multiple varieties of fruit or flowers, such as an apple tree that would then be able to produce several varieties of apples or a rose of Sharon shrub that would have different color flowers. The procedure entails uh, cutting off a branch and then making another cut in the branch that's still connected to the trunk, which then kind of creates a little tongue. And then you take another branch that's been cut and you get it in between the tongue there just so, and it gets sealed up and wrapped so that the tissues and cells from one combine with the tissues and cells from the other and continue their growth together. We could probably get a better explanation from Mr. John Lowe. We'll have to check with him and see if we got this right. In Romans 11, the Jews were described as being part of a cultivated olive tree that represents God's covenant of salvation, first given to Abraham, of which some of it, its Jewish branches were cut off. That is that partial hardening of Israel. This is followed then by Gentile branches from a wild olive tree being grafted in. And eventually Jewish branches will be... You've got to do those sound effects. Right? That's what it sounds like when you graft, of course. You know, um, they will be grafted in as well. Now, mind you, mind you that this, while this hardening has been going on, this doesn't mean that individual Jewish people cannot be saved. They absolutely can be. They can come to Christ. They can and they do. Our own missionary, Marty Wolf, is a prime example of a Jewish person who got saved and converts to Christianity. What it means is that there will come a day when God will stop his partial hardening of Israel and Israel as a nation will experience major revival. Major revival. We know that there will be at least the 144,000 that will come to faith, and we hope and pray many more. But while some did not receive him, there are also those who believed the light. That's our fourth point. <clears throat> those who believed the light, we see this in verses 11 to 13. Back to John chapter 1. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And just like we said, while the nation of Israel as a, a whole rejected Jesus, individual Jews did not and can still receive Jesus and his gospel message the 12 apostles, save for Judas, received him. Many of the women traveling with Jesus and the 12 received him. We had those 70 disciples receive him. Certainly the apostle Paul received him. And of course, there were other Jewish converts along the way. And of course, even continuing to this day. And this is why we have missions groups, right? Like uh, Jews for Jesus or, or Marty and Pat Wolf's Friends of Israel. To see Jews come to faith. And any Jew that received the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel message to them, Jesus gave the right, meaning by his authority, he granted them permission to become children of God. Now this phrase, children of God, first shows up in scripture right here, and then it's used again by John in chapter 11, and again in the book of Acts. Paul uses it throughout Romans and Philippians to, to denote Christians. So the children of God are 
Christians. We see this in Romans 8, verses 16 to 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So children of God, it obviously goes beyond the Jew. And now it's to the Greeks, to the Gentile. And John then comes back to the phrase several times in 1 John, such as in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, where he writes, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Something interesting to note, is that while John refers to believers as children of God, it's only Jesus who he calls God's son. Paul refers to believers as sons and daughters of God, but only in the context of adoption. In other words, both John and Paul preserve this unique sonship of Jesus to the Father. So who is it then that can receive Christ and become children of God? The text tells us those who believe in his name. And this is not referring to a a, a label as in a name, but rather the person and character that is behind the name, namely Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about this phrase is that John will use it again in chapter 2, verse 23, just go ahead and look there for a moment. It might mean flipping the one page in your Bible. But in, in John 2 and verse 23, Jesus has been uh, having it out with some of the Jews who have been questioning his authority. When we get to verse 23, and it says this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Meaning, it ain't good. It ain't good. And the point here is that though it says they believed in his name, it was only because of the miracles that he was doing. It was only those miracles. Their belief stopped short of true saving faith. We know this because, again, he he says that he didn't, or John says that Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. They were not true children of God. When Hudson Taylor... The famous missionary first went to China. It was on a sailing vessel. They were very close to the shore of some islands inhabited by cannibals. The ship was becalmed because of a lack of wind, and it was slowly drifting shoreward, unable to go about, with the cannibals on shore eagerly anticipating a feast. The captain came to Mr. Taylor and besought him to pray for the help of God. I will, said Taylor, provided you set your sails to catch the breeze. The captain declined to make himself a laughingstock by unfurling the sails in a dead calm. Taylor said, then I will not undertake to pray for the vessel unless you will prepare the sails. To which the captain finally obliged. While engaged in prayer, there was a knock at the door of his stateroom. Who is it? The captain's voice responded, Are you still praying for the wind? Yes. Well, said the captain, you better stop praying for we have more wind than we can manage. (laughs) You see, friends, there is what we might call intellectual faith, but then there is also true faith heartfelt, saving faith that in the case of a, a believer is, is, is something that propels one to action. Or if, if God is calling you to salvation, you respond. 
You respond in faith. This being said, going back to John 1 and verse 12, I do believe that John is referring to those who have exhibited true saving faith because they are identified as children of God. And furthermore, we know that John's talking about true saving faith because of the four descriptors that we then have in verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. These first three tell us what salvation does not come from. First, it's not some pedigree because you come from a certain bloodline or ethnicity. Jews don't receive salvation because they are Jewish, nor does anyone else because of the blood that is in their veins. Secondly, salvation does not come because of human will. You can't wish yourself to be saved. You can't do all the good works in the world to save yourself. Thirdly, no religious system or or man-made anything can save you. Showing up to this Bible-believing Christian church, Calvary Bible this morning, does not save you. We are happy you're here. Don't get us wrong. But just because you came, it doesn't mean that you have salvation. What will save you? The text tells us you must be born of God. This is what Jesus tells Nicodemus, right? In John chapter 3 about being born again, that he must be born by the Holy Spirit. It is God and God alone who can save. He is the one who calls you to salvation. He is the one that that grants you the ability by his grace to believe and have true saving faith. This is summed up so well in that classic passage from Romans 8, verses 29 to 30. For those whom he foreknew, talking about God the Father, those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Let me just ask you, was there, was there any mention in there of being born by blood, of being born of the will of the flesh or of the will of man? In that passage? No, absolutely none. In fact, what we see is he And his, it's all God. It's all his doing. He and his mentioned some 10 times. You say, well, well, okay, then what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe with your heart, though. Not just that confession with your mouth. It's got to be the confession with your mouth, but believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, then you will be saved. So it's trusting in the person and work of Christ Jesus to save you. There is nothing you can do. Nothing you can do to save yourself. It is all Him. We sin. We rebel against God. One sin is enough to send us to the fiery hell. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life again referring to true saving belief not just intellectual belief when i was up in church up north oh man we're right on main street i'd have so many people stop into the church and oh they'd want this or that or help with this and what have you and and we'd always share the gospel with them and oh it seemed like nine times out of ten because they were trying to say things that you wanted to hear so that you would give them whatever it was they needed. And it was often, no, no, I, oh yes, no, I believe. I believe in Jesus. And you talk to them a little bit longer and you recognize, mm, intellectually, you say you believe in Jesus. But I'm not sensing anything or seeing anything that would show up as fruit. That means it's from the heart. But yes, we are those rebellious sinners who need a Savior. The Savior is Jesus. He went to the cross on our behalf. He died in our place. It should be us up on that cross. It's Jesus, thankfully so. He dies and then goes into the ground. And if that was it, oh, we should be pitied. Most to be pitied. 
But three days later, he resurrects from the dead. Oh, we're going to be celebrating Easter, resurrection of Jesus Christ here shortly. And what a glorious time that will be. He becomes alive. He is the guarantor of our salvation because he is alive. And because he is alive, then we can be alive. We can have life after death. You can, have, you can have salvation. You can have an eternity with God. You can be in his heavenly realm with Christ Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever. And yes, you are called to believe that message. You are called to repent and believe in the gospel. Friends, here's, here's what I want you to walk away with this morning. And it's, it's largely evangelistic this morning. I, I think we need to make sure that we are praising God, praising the Lord that he has chosen to show up into our very darkened world as light. It was a darkened world when Jesus came to earth as a human being. It was a darkened world the minute Adam and Eve ate the fruit. And yes, it remains dark, but Jesus is the light and he has come into the world. And then, of course, praise Jesus for what he has done on the cross so that every man, every person could be enlightened. And if you are here this morning and you have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you haven't trusted in what he did on the cross for you, you need to do that today. Today is the day of your salvation. You say, well, what does that mean? Are you going to make me come up front? Are you going to make me raise my hand? No, nothing like that. You have to believe in your heart. In just a couple minutes here, I'm going to pray, and maybe, maybe your prayer, if that's you, your prayer this morning is, Lord Jesus, I am not worthy of your kingdom. I'm not worthy of you. I'm a sinner through and through, and I'm sorry for my sin. But I do believe that you accomplished forgiveness of sins and salvation with your work on the cross and your resurrection unto eternal life. And I, and I believe that's it. I mean, that's it. That's all you have to do. Do it. Do it. Maybe even this morning. Secondly, beware of false lights. False lights that are in the world. Right? We talked about the Gnosticism. I don't know of any Gnostics these days or whatever, but how about things like other religions or politics? or social constructs of our day, or the media, or secular psychology, etc., etc. Anything that promises some other kind of false salvation is a false light. Thirdly, speaking of being enlightened, remember that Jesus' gospel light shines indiscriminately to all kinds of people, every kind of person. It is not just meant for the Jew, it is meant for the Gentile as well, but it's also It is also not meant only for people like you. I say this because sometimes I think we get into this mindset that we we can only evangelize people like us. Or maybe it's that we really only want to evangelize people like us. Oh Lord, please, please don't make me evangelize, you know, a different ethnicity or somebody who has, you know, crazy political beliefs or a homosexual or a transgender or a drug addict or a criminal. Yeah, you can fill in the blank, okay? To withhold the gospel from any person for any reason is sinful and we should be ashamed of ourselves. If Jesus' message enlightens every kind of person, shouldn't you and I be willing to share Christ with every kind of person? And fourthly, remember that though Jesus has come into the very world that he has made, the world by and large has rejected him. And so often I think that we as Christians, we get, we get really frustrated. Let's call it what it is. It's anger, even sinful anger, when unbelievers act like unbelievers. I mean, come on, gang. Should we expect them to do otherwise? And oftentimes, we do. We do expect them to act otherwise. I mean, just think about it. Have you ever been frustrated or angry in a relationship with a non-Christian acquaintance or a friend? 
or a family member? Have you ever been frustrated or angry in a secular work environment or in the public school system or with secular politics or secular social movements or with the secular university college system? And what we have to remember again, folks, is that unbelievers will act like unbelievers. It's to be expected. It's the way we acted. Until they hear the gospel, until they repent and believe and become Christians, then we can and should expect to hear and see something different. But until then, maybe this just helps us to be a little gracious, maybe a little compassionate towards people that don't know Christ even while they're in the midst of their sin? And then lastly, praise the Lord that those who believe and receive Jesus will be saved by God and called his children. And and this should remind us too that yes, we are given the responsibility of sharing God's message of now being the light in the world. But we need to sometimes remind ourselves that it's not our job to save people. And again, we can get ourselves really tied up in a knot. Really tied up in a knot by by thinking, what am I doing wrong? Why is this person not coming to faith? No, God's call on us is to faithfully share Christ. But then his role is, of course, to save that person, bringing them to Christ. And I think this can be liberating for us. It can be liberating Because it it takes that burden of getting someone saved off our shoulders. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for this blessed day. Lord, any day that we have is blessed. But the fact that we get to come together and be with each other, the children of God gathered together on a Sunday morning here at Calvary Bible Church, that's a special blessing, and we praise you and thank you for it. If there's anyone here, Lord, that needs salvation, I pray that right now they would be praying in their own heart that prayer of just saying, Lord, I'm a sinner, yes, and I do need Jesus. I need that Savior, Jesus. And Lord, I want to turn from my sins, and I, and I put my faith in what Jesus did on the cross. And Lord, I'm thankful that that uh, not only did Jesus die, but that he resurrected, and now to be blessed by the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We pray all of these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.